Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we will be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness, as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Brett Worley, Associate Professor of OBGYN, Learning Communities Program Director, Lead Physician at the Women's Sexual Health Clinic at the Center for Women's Health in the Department of OBGYN at the Ohio State University Waxner College of Medicine. Today, we'll be talking about sexual medicine education in American medical schools today. Please enjoy this podcast. This morning, we have Dr. Brett Worley that we're very excited about having because he is the first author on an article named Sexual Health Education in Obstetrics and Gynecology Residencies, a Resident Physician Survey. And this has been kind of a roadmap for uh, our podcast here. And so he's got a lot of experience with talking about and looking at sexual medical issues in training and what's been happening thus far. So thank you very much, Brett, for, for joining us today and appreciate your insights. And I wanted to start our conversation with kind of a very basic question, and, and, and that is, why is it important for providers to learn about women's sexual health? First of all, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here today. I think it's so important for OBGYN providers to really have a, a good foundation in, in sexual health for multiple reasons. I think one is OBGYNs, we're trusted care providers for our patients, and we can go ahead and care for them in different ways and have expertise in different ways that maybe other specialties don't as far as vulvar health, as far as hormones that are related sometimes to menopause, sometimes related to regular menstrual cycles, pregnancy. We talk about things in general that are intimate and different than other specialties do in addition. And so we have a unique space and a unique opportunity I think also it's important to think of sexual health as part of a a person's overall health. We're not just here to go ahead and fix the the specific problem, whether it's fibroids or abnormal uterine bleeding or or a specific issue. We're here to care for the whole patient. And part of the entire patient's health in general is is their sexual health as well, just like mental health is an important component. And then the other aspect I think that's important to me personally is to go ahead and, and help families too. You know, we spend time helping to build families for the, the appropriate patient and the appropriate time. If they want to have a healthy pregnancy, we can also help to go ahead and keep relationships together. I have many women who will come to me that their relationships are in danger of being severed or their enormous problems. And partly because they're sexual problems, the patient sometimes doesn't have anybody to talk to about it, doesn't have anywhere to go. There are lots of social stigmas. We as OBGYNs have a, a unique role to be able to go and help support those patients in those roles. Knowing that, what is the state of our training in, in female sexual health? How 
prepared are we as OBGYNs to help people with these issues? I think there's a substantial amount of room for improvement here. You know, we did a survey looking at uh, residency program directors and I believe they felt somewhere on the order of about 37% of residents were not as well prepared to handle sexual issues as, as they had hoped. There's a substantial number of medical students who don't feel comfortable going ahead and talking about sexual health with patients. We did surveys with residents looking at all this too, and there are specific areas that, that residents felt really well competent and capable as far as caring for patients that sexual problems related to like menopause and those kinds of things. But there are other areas and aspects where the residents just didn't have that comfort level. So for instance, caring for patients that are in the transgender transition, caring for patients that were survivors or, or victims of sex trafficking. Those are some of the areas where we found that there's specific areas of, of need where OBGYN residents that didn't necessarily have the, the comfort or the confidence to go and walk into those uh, clinical scenarios to really be the physician to help patients patients through those challenging times. Let's talk about those barriers. What would you tell a resident, a learner, you know, if they felt uncomfortable talking about something, whether it was just they're embarrassed, you know, their beliefs are, you know, upset by it. How do we help our, our providers learn to, to navigate through this to help people? Yeah, I think there are two things to say. One is as OBGYNs, we talk about things that like, that no other doctor ever would ever <laughs> think true. about talking about with it's patients. True. And so invariably there's like this barrier that happens when, when you're an OBGYN where you're like, you cross that barrier. You talk about things like menstrual history, about incontinence, things that like most people off the street wouldn't ever feel comfortable. And most people by their upbringing wouldn't feel comfortable, like bringing up with a, a friend or family member. So there's that kind of a barrier that we cross regardless. And so I think it's important to consider it from that perspective that we're crossing these boundaries or crossing these social or recognized social barriers. And, and so this is another barrier that we can cross as OBGYNs. And we have that permission with patients and the appropriate patient-physician relationship setting. And, and then I think the other thing to say too is caring for these patients, it's really important. It's important to go ahead and help to, to provide this care. For some of us, we come from backgrounds or education or religious backgrounds or cultural backgrounds where certain things are, are not okay. And, and that's okay to, to have that perspective. And that's okay to have that background. And I think nobody in medicine should ever be forced to go ahead and, and go around or go through or ignore their deeply held religious or ethical beliefs. I think we all need to stick to those. And, and so in those scenarios, when a, a person you know has some sort of conflict from an ethical or background or a religious perspective, I'm just simply referring out saying, you know, hey, you know, this isn't really the thing for me. I don't have have this area of expertise, but I have a colleague down the hall, or I have a colleague across town, or I, you know, I did training with this one teacher, this one uh, physician who's just phenomenal, who I, I know can go ahead and do a really good job for you to help you through that in a way that they have amazing skills and, and you'll really get some benefit from that. So, you know, if you're not comfortable, if you don't feel like your ethical values or religious values align with the patient in that particular way, I think just a quick referral out is reasonable for most patients and for most providers. So many areas don't have people that have any kind of expertise in this field. How do we get around that? You refer, but how do you set that up? Yeah, I think it's really hard. You know, it's not easy. There are organizations like ACOG where, you know, you can go to a national conferences, you can talk with colleagues, trusted friends, that kind of thing to get a sense as to who's available in your area. 
networking. There are state ACOG level meetings. There might be local regional meetings or, or even local meetings in your area that you can meet. This podcast with Dr. Gibbs is a, another great way to, to get to know others and get to know people both in your local landscape and also the national landscape to, to get to know people, to uh, build that network up. There are organizations like ISWICH, which is um, a sexual health organization that exists uh, nationwide and actually worldwide, the International Society for Sexual Women's Health that is also available to, that would take some extra effort and time, but it could be as easy as just like popping up a website and finding people that are, are certified and trained in a particular area. And then as always, we're lifelong learners as OBGYNs. And so continuing to kind of put, and it's easy to say sometimes and hard to actually do, but just by listening to this podcast, many of the listeners here have already taken that step and, and taken a, a proactive stance and, and educating themselves in ways that they might not otherwise pick up otherwise. And, and then also so just like asking trusted friends or mentors or advisors, if you're a medical student, if you're a resident, there could be people within your residency program who have expertise or experience in these areas and asking them to teach, asking them to do a didactic session, a grand rounds, or just saying, you know, hey, Dr. X, I have this really tough patient. I'm not sure exactly what to do. Let me tell you about this person. And sometimes you can just go ahead and get a quick, you know, a two minute or five minute feedback and input can be really valuable. I, I just have to give a plug here that you perfectly set this up. But I met Dr. Worley through a organization, a group called the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative, which our very existence is to, to really be a resource for, like Dr. Worley was talking about, to help people with these questions when they don't have the expertise. And I will include the contact information in the show notes too. It's just another resource like the others he just mentioned, and I just had to give a plug. Sorry. So yeah. going on. Perfectly placed. You know, you have people that, you know, say, okay, this is good, but I really have an interest. I, I really love just OB or boy, I'm a GYN surgeon. And I, that's really my focus, my fancy, my, my all, you know, but you want me to ask about sexual dysfunction. How do I put that into a, a busy practice and I've got a lot of people and I don't have a problem with it, but but how do I fit that in? Yeah, it can be hard, but just some examples. So for instance, like if I have a patient who I'm seeing a GYN patient, the patient's going through menopause or the patient has a mental health issue or the patient's on a, a, a medication for their mental health, I'll say, you know, I noticed that you're on the Prozac medicine. Prozac can be really helpful for a lot of patients in your circumstances. One of the common side effects with Prozac, a lot of people sometimes experience a desire problem or orgasm problems or other sexual related issues. Uh, how are things going for you these days? So something of that nature that kind of normalizes the, the situation so that they can get an understanding that, you know, they're not alone because oftentimes people feel very alone with these sexual health problems and feel like they can go ahead and bring that up. And, and then in the busy course of my office day, uh, you know, some of my day is scheduled specifically for patients that have sexual health problems, but some of it is like a, just a normal OBGYN schedule that, you know, I see patients like every five minutes or 15 minutes, depending. And so in those scenarios, you know, giving them quick advice. So there's a implicit model, giving them permission of the P, the limited information, LI. So limited information for a patient, for instance, that has, let's say, a sexual desire issue that has a mental health issue on Prozac, let's say. You could go ahead and say, you know, some patients that have this sexual problem, it may or may not be related to mental health issues or medication. 
please don't stop your medication right now. But the person that's providing your medication, your family doctor, your psychiatrist, you might be able to bring this issue up with them to go and kind of think about a different medication. So it's a, a specific suggestion in addition. And then intensive therapy, the IT part of the placet is intensive therapy. And sometimes you will, and sometimes you won't have the ability or the time to go ahead and do that yourself. But sometimes you can refer them to like a sex therapist or to an OBGYN or other type of healthcare provider that can go ahead and provide specific sexual health evaluation and treatment for those patients too. So those can be different ways. So PLICIT is the acronym. Permission, limited information, specific suggestions, and intensive therapy can be just like a, a quick, you know, two-second quick hitter to go ahead and help the patient launch off and, and get some improvement in their sexual health. In some of my podcasts that I've done thus far, we brought up and talked about questionnaires. Are you a questionnaire user in your office? It's a long story. And the short answer is no, it's not really pertinent to this. We've had questionnaires in the office in our past, but we've had troubles because there have been specific questions that are no longer appropriate. They're anachronistic. And so we're regenerating those questionnaires. But I think in general, yes, I think questionnaires can be helpful. Screening questionnaires can be just like a quick way for physicians to go and kind of look down the list, see if there's a big problem and, and highlight that during the visit. Or say, you know, hey, I noticed that on this particular survey that you finished, it looks like there might be an orgasm issue that's going on in your relationship. We're here to talk about the annual exam today. Let's schedule an appointment in the next few weeks to go ahead and kind of talk about this orgasm problem at a later date. That's a great recommendation to have people come back because so many people are concerned that they have to do everything in that one meeting. Right. And so that's, that, right. that's a great recommendation. So Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the education itself and just the, the subjects. I kind of used your your paper as a roadmap for the, the subject matter I brought up on these podcasts. Could you give us an overview on just some of the crucial things that, that people really want to have some ideas about in helping people? Some of the main things that, that we thought looked at, we looked at the, the CREAG-APCO objectives and uh, uh, sexual health. And notice that their objectives are organized over things like desire. So in these days, it's female sexual interest and arousal disorder. It used to be known as hyperactive sexual desire disorder. People that have sexual pain, so sexual pain disorder that includes like dyspareunia and vaginismus. It includes patients that have female orgasmic disorder. Those are some different areas. Plus additional issues such as patients that have disabilities in their sexual health, patients that have female genital mutilation or circumcision and their sexual health and how to interact with them in a professional, helpful way. And then patients that are transgender to go ahead and help them both in where they are as far as their sexuality, how to support them and how to provide information and advice as they go through their transition, wherever is right for them. Those are some of the areas. And then also with sex trafficking too, is that their big issue? Sex trafficking is an enormous problem that, you know, outside of medicine, probably, and even in medicine, most people don't imagine or realize how big of an issue sex trafficking is. But specifically in Ohio, it's one of the places in the country, I think they were second in the country as far as the number of sex trafficking perpetrators that we have, unfortunately, related to one of the sporting events that we used to have here at Ohio State. But sex trafficking is another big issue. And so making sure that resident OBGYNs are fully prepared when they graduate from residency to feel comfortable and confident to go ahead and take care of patients in those circumstances. I find another subject that blows your mind to, to think about, but the, the intimate partner violence and it really how big that is, that it's so extensive for like one in three or four women uh, will experience it in their lifetime, both 
physical or just emotional. And what do you do for your trainees in, in that regard? Yeah, the problem is heartbreaking, you know, to have somebody who's a close relation or a family member or loved one is actively harming them in some way. It just it's really hard for those patients. From my perspective, I try to screen patients. I screen all patients for that. I screen them multiple times. I talk with my residents about how intimate partner violence is sometimes really difficult to disclose. People are ashamed. They feel like they're the person that's at fault. They feel like they're the person that's doing the wrong thing. And, and oftentimes they don't feel comfortable talking with us as providers, particularly the first few times that they meet us. So oftentimes we'll go ahead and I'll talk with residents about this idea of like building trust with the, the patient, which is sometimes hard when you see patients, sometimes when you might see them a couple times, but your partner sees them uh, more times or whatnot, you don't necessarily see them all the time, but it's building that trust and, and uh, continuing to go ahead and screen patients and, and realizing that patients don't necessarily disclose to you. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad doctor. It doesn't mean that they're a bad patient. It just means that they haven't built that trust level up quite with you yet. Earlier on in my training and career, I felt like, you know, if this wasn't happening, then I wasn't doing the right thing. And and sometimes that's not necessarily always the case. We have to meet patients where they are. And if they're not ready to talk about intimate partner violence, if they need to talk about, you know, their chronic pelvic pain, or if they need to talk instead about their period problems or, or you know, other issues, we can be that person to go ahead and kind of help them and meet them where they are. And then when they're ready, and if they're ready to talk about intimate partner violence, if they're ready to disclose, then we can go ahead and provide that support. So I, I think that's really important. I think with your experience, I'd love to know what are some of the things that tip you off to some of these problems, trafficking or the violence that, you know, you're just meeting somebody for the first time. What are you listening for? There are a couple of misconceptions. One is that patients who are sex trafficking victims are sometimes from, are commonly from other countries, and they can be from other countries, but there can be people who are sex trafficked within the United States. But things that I look out for, you know, if a person has a, a really negative, down, quiet affect, you know, if they're they're looking down most of the visit, if they're very quiet, if they have another person in the room with them who speaks with for them commonly, or if there's uh, somebody who insists that, that they don't necessarily want a translator to be involved, that, that they just want this extra a guest of the person to be involved. If the patient themselves has kind of mismatched clothing, clothing that, for instance, like is really nice, but maybe is torn in a few places. If the patient comes to me frequently for things like a vaginal discharge complaints or sexually transmitted screening, that would be more concerning. If the patient has um, barcode tattoos, this is something that I had no idea about, but just like the barcodes on the, the packages that we get in the mail or the things that we buy at the supermarket, people actually have like barcode tattoos sometimes on their neck or their head or other parts of their body showing quote unquote ownership of, of the perpetrator of the, of the sexual trafficking. Uh, these are some of the signs. And also if there's a, a male's name tattooed, particularly like on the neck or the head, uh, those are other ways that, that, you know, those are signs that to me suggest, you know, hey, there might be something up. And, and, and again, sometimes patients aren't ready to disclose. We can't promise safety for a, a survivor, a victim of sex trafficking. We can't promise safety for all their loved ones. Uh, unfortunately, there are patients that, for instance, don't have control over their documents. There are patients that don't have control over threats to harm for their family members in foreign countries or even in our country. And so we can't control all that. And so uh, finding networks that do exist, and there are not national organizations that help patients who are survivors or victims of sex trafficking that we can uh, help plug patients into and, and help get them the, the help and support that they need. It's, it's really challenging when there are patients like this. And, and 
Uh, it takes a lot of time, kind of like what you're talking about for, you know, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy, but it's the the passion and the compassion that you and I, we all have when we first got into OBGYN, when we first went to medical school that, you know, we need to go ahead and kind of remember so that we can help these patients in the greatest needs. What do you do in Columbus if you realize you have a patient that's a, being trafficked or having violence? What's your steps that you take there? So support them and certain people. And, and this, again, depends on your state laws. You have to go ahead and check your state laws. But they're, they're reportable offenses. So, for instance, like if it's a minor, if it's a person who's under 18, if a person who's over 65 in Ohio, we're mandatory reporters. So we have to report that. But in different states, it's different. And so you'd have to kind of look in your individual state by state. If it's mandatory reporting, then we have to go through different systems, through the, the authorities to go ahead and report that situation. Uh, and it's one of those things where it, we have to be very objective in what we report, you know, uh, reporting about what the patient says, you know, using quotations for the patient, looking at the patient's body and identifying like scars or marks or bruises or lacerations, contusions, uh, and uh, documenting that uh, sometimes with the patient's permission, taking pictures, if that's okay with the patient, and, and then reporting that to authorities. If the person isn't a patient that we need to do that mandatory reporting, then provide Providing the, the support that we can provide for the patient. So there are intimate partner violence and shelters in, in Columbus and in Ohio in general. The nationwide sex trafficking hotline exists, thankfully, to help out with that. If the patient's in the hospital setting, we're seeing them like in the OBGYN triage area or if we're doing GYN surgery, we have social workers in the hospital. If you're outside of the hospital, it's a little bit challenging. Thankfully, we also have a resident clinic that's aligned with our clinics and we can oftentimes utilize the help of the, the social workers that, that work over there too. But I, I would imagine for somebody in private practice, it can be really challenging and, and can be difficult. And so again, using your local resources the best way possible is the idea. How do you approach a sex worker that's you know kind of nonchalant or kind of blatant about or their activities? How do you approach that? I think there are also misconceptions about sex workers. You know, some sex workers, again, are sex trafficked and are forced to do things against their will. Mm -hmm. And in that scenario, you know, providing support, helping to counsel them on safety, how to have safer sex acts as much as possible, providing contraception uh, if they don't want to get pregnant. There are some sex workers who have sex with People who are a higher risk as far as transmission of HIV or other things. And so talking to them uh, with them about like pre-exposure prophylaxis or post-exposure prophylaxis, if they think that they might have had sex in an unprotected fashion with somebody who's high risk for, for HIV transmission. There are patients, though, who, you know, um, they're uh, sex workers by choice. Um, they want to be in that profession. That's the profession uh, for different reasons. It helps to support their family. It helps to support them, their loved ones. And again, this is, I think, an area where, like, my uh, traditional upbringing might be different than theirs as far as what's okay and what's not okay. But this is where they are right now. And and again, aligning with them in a professional capacity to go ahead and help provide patient support, a, a trust building between the doctor and the patient. And if they want to leave kind of that life of of sex work, then, then to provide that uh, option and provide the resources in whatever way we can with social workers and, and resources, et cetera. I, th I think one last thing I hope our trainees are, you know, kind of inspired to get some more training. And I know so many of us, I know personally, I've been out for a while, but I, don't, I only had one lecture in my four years of OBGYN training on, on sexual issues. But many report, as in your paper and others, maybe four or five 
lectures in a an entire training. We have this podcast. What other ways would you really encourage p- people that are in training programs that don't have a strong sexual medicine expert associated with that training program like yours? What, what would you encourage them to do? Again, this uh, podcast is a great launching off point. You mentioned the Ohio Sexual Health Consortium. ACOG has different resources. The ISWISH, the International Society of Sexual and Women's Health. So there are different societies that can be helpful. Uh, and then also continue to just be a student, you know, um, asking when you don't understand. I, I've had uh, situations where I've actually learned about sexual problems from patients because they've taught me about things. When I first got to uh, Columbus, I opened up a women's sexual health clinic. And, and all of a sudden, I started seeing something that I'd never seen before in residency I hadn't learned about persistent genital arousal disorder, which is something that don't learn much about. And so uh, I had to actually get some of my education from the patients and, and understand kind of what they're going through. I went online and I went to go ahead and have different online forums, Twitter, et cetera, and, and just started looking into it more and then did a PubMed search so I could go ahead and better understand. So the different ways that, to go ahead and get uh, information and resources. Polyamory was another one where I felt like patients really kind of like they educated me about what that means and what that's like for them. And and again, you know, um, we have different upbringings and different things that we think of as right or wrong. But for patients, you know, this is where they are and this is how we build their trust. And, and our job is to help them to have a, a, as healthy a life as they can. And, and they absolutely can have a healthy life with these different um, uh, sexual choices. We just need to go ahead and help them and, and kind of optimize the, their health through it. But so there, there are different options and opportunities to do all this and, and continuing to learn, continuing to learn from transgender patients about kind of their experience and, and what they're going through. So I think it's also to be like this, this continuous learner throughout your entire career, not to give up on that. You know, uh, I wish I, I had all the knowledge I ever needed from medical school or from residency, but that's simply not the case. And, and so um, uh, these podcasts that you're doing, Dr. Gibbs, are terrific. Thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. Any final tidbits or nuggets of wisdom that you'd like to leave our our learners with? Yeah, no, I think it's just important at the end of the day to treat people like people. You know, we're all doing our best. We all have so many uh, background stories as far as like why we do what we do and and that kind of thing. Really meeting the patient where they are, uh, asking open-ended questions. Um, You know, sometimes, again, I think we talked before about you can't fit everything into one visit. So sometimes scheduling additional visits in the future with patients. But when you can and when you're able to to ask those open-ended questions and just listen and give them a moment to go ahead and kind of talk and explain and, and describe. And when you don't understand, you know, and there are always going to be things that, you know, for you and me, we don't necessarily know. But just to simply ask and, and uh, allowing yourself to be that, that student learner in that room, that even though we're the patients and physicians, we can still learn from our patients. And I think that's important as well. Well, I want to thank you for your time again. And it's been a pleasure for really enlightening us and our our audience on just the education and what we can do to, to, get, to get better at sexual health education. So thank you again. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. I was really glad to be here. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Gibbs. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.